What is the reason for the season? A simple Google search will prove quite revealing. Well, this might come as a surprise to many fundamentalist Christians, you know, who are grieved that there is this war on Christmas within our culture. A recent Pew study found that the war on Christmas is probably actually all but over. While most Americans indeed participate in Christmas activities, the reality is that a majority of people believe today in America that Christmas actually really doesn't have a lot to do with religion anymore. 90% of Americans celebrate Christmas, but only 50%, which is still a large number, but if you look at it historically, it's, it's amazing the decline. Only 50% of Americans even view Christmas as being a religious holiday at all. And that particular decline is even more stark when you look at the numbers of the Pew study generationally. Of adults over 65 years in age, 66% see Christmas as a religious holiday. So that, that's up 16% from the norm. 60% of seniors, 65 older, will attend a religious service on Christmas or Christmas Eve. 76% of this demographic, this general, generational uh, segment, uh, believe in the virgin birth. However, if you compare those numbers with adults that are 18 to 29, what we would consider more millennial, the numbers do something weird. Of adults 18 to 29, 39% see Christmas as a religious holiday. That's a 27% decrease. 46% of this age bracket will attend a religious service on Christmas or Christmas Eve. That's down 14%. And 66% believe in the virgin birth. That's down 10%. Now, it's interesting that the same Pew study also revealed that the way churchgoers and non-church attenders celebrate Christmas is almost identical if you just remove the religious connotations, roughly 86% of both of these groups, Christians, non-Christians, will spend Christmas with friends or family, and it's the same percentage of these groups that will participate in Christmas by giving gifts. An identical share, church attenders and non-church attenders, 33% will even pretend to get a visit from Santa Claus on Christmas Eve. This morning... I need to tell you that if the reason for the season, if the point behind Christmas is only fun tales of old Saint Nick, Rudolph, elves, or Frosty the Snowman, if your time this season is only occupied decorating evergreen trees, hanging lights and garland, or strategically positioning mistletoe, if your focus is only on consuming copious amounts of eggnog, gingerbread men, or overfrosted cookies, if this season is about listening to holiday jazz, watching a bad Tom Hanks movie, and let's be honest, Polar Express is not very good, or if this season centers upon wearing ugly sweaters, if your time this holiday is dominated by getting gifts, giving gifts, or what I do, returning gifts, you will find yourself truly missing out 
on what this season is all about. You see, the reason for the season is that Christmas centers upon the amazing nature of God's grace. As a matter of fact, without God's grace, there wouldn't be a Christmas at all. Let's look at Luke chapter 2. We're going to read the classic Christmas story. We'll start with the first seven verses. We're told it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Canarius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. While he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was, while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Luke begins this narrative by telling us that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Since Joseph was a descendant, direct descendant of King David, he and Mary are forced to travel from Galilee, out of Nazareth, into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. The inconvenient timing of this decree and subsequent journey is obvious, right? We're told Mary, Joseph's wife, was with child. Sadly, even a doctor's note wasn't going to get Mary out of this unexpected, painstaking journey. Because of the decree, poor old Joe had no choice but to load up his extremely pregnant wife and make a roughly 100-mile journey south out of Nazareth through the Judean wilderness, a mountain range, up into Bethlehem. That had to have been a terrible, terrible trip. And as brutal as these two weeks, two weeks on foot, as brutal as that would have been, upon arriving to Bethlehem, things take a dramatic turn for the worse, don't they? Luke indicates Bethlehem was so overcrowded that Mary and Joseph are forced to kind of a last resort. They have to set up shop in a stable, we're told, because there was no room for them in the inn. Keep in mind, a stable in this part of the world during the first century was not a wooden shed set upon a Thomas Kincaid-like picturesque hillside. Instead, this stable was a cave hewn from the mountain, used by shepherds to shelter their flocks, typically at night. Understand this stable. It wasn't sanitary. It wasn't clean. No one had prepped it. This was desperate times and desperate measures. This stable was gross. It was smelly. Not the place you'd want to have a baby, yet alone stay a night. Luke tells us that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger. A manger. They left the bassinet back in Bethlehem. I can see Joseph's trepidation. And he had to get into the scene, right? They get to Bethlehem. They go to check in. The hotel's overbooked. 
He calls Priceline. Like, what in the world's going on? They're like, there's nothing we can do. We'll just give you a refund. Where are we going to stay? Where are we going to go? Not to mention, I've got, I've got Mary. We've made this journey. We just, she just wants to kick back, put up her feet. Her feet swollen to balloon size, right? They end up settling for this stable. Not good. And then Mary. They finally get settled in, right? She's like, honey, uh, we might have a, a problem. Her water unexpectedly breaks. Like, ready or not, Mary is going into labor. And Joseph is going to have to play the role of doctor, nurse, midwife. It's he and he alone. Like, this detail that Luke gives us, she brought forth her firstborn son. Imagine all of the things that are excluded. Like the scene itself. Mary's never had a baby. Joseph has never delivered a baby. They don't have YouTube to quickly figure out how to go about doing this. Like, you know, what's interesting is that the text, the text says she brought forth her firstborn son. Like, Joseph meant well, right? All right, honey, I got you. We're good. I can do this. And at the first sign of blood, I'm out. Nothing I can do. Like, she brought forth. Where's Joseph? She's the one doing it. When, when we had Quincy, I was really amped to be involved in this process. And, um, and, and as soon as like the, the first little bit of, of that kind of started happening, um, I'm like, whoo, whoo, all right. So I walked over, take a swig of Dr. Pepper, exact, got to get yourself together. And the nurse turns and she goes, you okay? I was like, yeah. She goes, cause you're, you're, you're pretty white. I was like, no, that's my natural color. She was like, no, no, I, you're an abnormal white. And I was like, ma'am, I really only have one goal for this evening. You got to deal with the baby. My job is not to require medical attention myself. Poor Joseph. Poor Mary. In a stable. You know, one would have thought that such a monumental event in the history of humanity, I mean, the entire direction of the Old Testament lends itself to this moment. God sending his son, the king of kings arriving, the savior of the world. I mean, this is the biggest thing to have ever happened in the history of the planet up to that moment and since. And yet all we're given is just one or two lines. Like you would have thought that the birth of God's son would have demanded a little more attention, a bit more fanfare by the historian Luke. And yet, instead of elaborating on the details of the manger scene, maybe he gives them a little privacy, doesn't want to rip on Joseph fainting, but Luke does something weird. He immediately and abruptly shifts the narrative in the most unexpected of directions. Look at verse 8. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, meaning they were out in the fields, they didn't live there, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were greatly afraid. We would say they were wigged out. 
Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards man. It really is astonishing to me that instead of allowing his readers just a moment to soak up the incredible significance of this scene of the incarnation, Luke quickly transition, transitions the readers, you and I, from the stable manger with baby Jesus to the tranquil solitude of a field full of shepherds watching over their flocks by night. Sadly, because our 21st century church culture has, to a large degree, sterilized the identity of these shepherds, we have a hard time understanding how really bizarre this scene shift is. 19th century scholar Alfred Edernstein, he wrote a book titled The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. And in it, he made a claim about the shepherds that's very interesting. He wrote, the shepherds were outcasts because of their necessary isolation from religious ordinances and manner of life. Like what he means is that the job of a shepherd, because it included certain tasks, kind of came with the job. It was a dirty job. And because these tasks would make you ceremonially unclean, shepherds were banned from going to the temple. Shepherds couldn't go to the temple and offer a sacrifice. They had unclean hands, meaning they could never atone for their sin. But most shepherds didn't give a rip. You see, shepherds, we're not the upstanding model citizens we've made them out to be or those we want our sons to play in a Christmas nativity. If you were a shepherd in the first century, your life had so spiraled out of control that you were now relegated to an occupation at the lowest rung of society. Like the Jews saw a shepherd that not even God wanted anything to do with them. And as such, shepherds were commonly drunkards. They were addicts, vagabonds. They were known to be sexually perverse. When they came to town, people like closed the doors, shuttered the windows, brought the kids in. Populations of, of shepherds often came with sexually venereal diseases. They were perverse. They were known to be pickpocketers. These men, these shepherds, were dropouts, bums, deviants, outcasts. Think of the shepherds as a biker gang of outlaws, straight out the hit TV show, Sons of Anarchy. No mother in her right mind would ever dream or desire her little boy to grow up to be one of those guys, a shepherd. You see, it's not only weird. Luke prematurely leaves this glorious scene of the manger. But it's with these things in mind that it's really strange Luke shifts the narrative to this group of shepherds of all people who, by this hour of the night, are, are likely sitting around a fire 
half past tipsy. Once again, get yourself into the story. You've had one too many drinks. You're out with your boys around a fire. It's dark. When out of the blue, ba-boom, an angel of the Lord stands before you. And the glory of the Lord, we're told, shone around them. Two things. The angel appears, the glory surrounds them, or, or literally the brightness of God engulfed them. That's what it means. Not only, as you can picture, these men immediately disoriented by a bright light coming out of the sky. It's like a UFO. It's an abduction. Beam of light. I mean, you're freaking out. This angelic figure. But Luke says they're greatly afraid. These are hard guys. They'd been in their share of fights. But here, this was something crazy because of the angel's first words. Like you can, you can imagine the scene is hectic. They're diving behind boulders. You know, they're picking up weaponry. They're doing everything they can to get on their feet. The first words are what? Do not be afraid, which means what? They were horrified. And the angel says, I bring you good tidings, good news, good things, chill out. Good things, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. <laughs> we often think about this story from the, the, the angle of the shepherds. But just indulge me for a minute and, and consider it from the angle of the angel. Like, what was the angel's reaction when he found out that he was being sent to a group of shepherds and sheep in a field of Bethlehem. Like God has had this plan, right? Gonna send his son to the world. That son's gonna die to save the world of sins. You're this angel and God has called you centuries before and say, listen, you're gonna have a role in this. You're like, yes! You're gonna be the announcer the grand poop, you're like, all right. And then there's gonna be like this heavenly host. You're gonna be the choir director, the orchestra. Like, it's gonna be awesome. You're the man. The angel's like, all right. So for centuries, you know, that angel's prepping his lines, getting everything ready. He's in heaven, waiting for the curtain to go back. That curtain pulls, he turns. And his drunk shepherds and sheep, the sheep are, and the shepherds are, are falling over themselves. Like, this is the audience you've been prepping for? You gotta be kidding me. Like, if I were the angel, right? Like, I would have expected that curtain to be pulled back and what to be there? The temple with a bunch of priests. Like, the religious people, right? The seed of religion. I mean, I'm announcing that the Savior's arrived, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one we've all been waiting for. If not the temple, then, then maybe the Colosseum in Rome, right? The seat of power, the, the seat of prestige. If not that, maybe the Pantheon in, in Athens, the educated, the learned, the thinkers. The one thing I can say for sure is that I would not have expected shepherds keeping watch over their flocks. Those shifting 
from the glory of the manger to a dark field full of shepherds is peculiar. In an interesting twist, it really shouldn't be. Like consider how many of the great biblical characters, men that God included in big roles in his story, were shepherds. Like this perspective of a shepherd didn't didn't start in the first century. There was a reason for this. Throughout history, Abel was a shepherd. Abraham, Isaac, Jake, shepherds. King David was a what? A shepherd. That list can go on and on and on. Shepherds being included. God kind of had a business of including shepherds. You see, a dark field and a group of deviants presented the perfect illustration of the world and the outlook of humanity that Jesus was being sent into. The world had been darkened by sin. The world was in rebellion against God. Those shepherds were the chief sinners of the day. The truth is that all of mankind was equally lost. It's with that backdrop that the angel breaks through the darkness with what? Great news to all sinners that what? There is born to you this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Understand, Jesus came with the mission to shine light into the darkness. Jesus came to save those who were lost, to redeem the sinner, to reach the outcast, the downtrodden. I mean, can you think of a better place to maybe start that mission? than in that field full of shepherds. These men, they weren't deserving of good news. These men hadn't earned the right to be first recipients. They knew it. They were separated from God and they were aware of their fallen condition. You see, the angel appeared to these men for one reason and one reason alone, God's grace. God chose, independent of these men, to include them in the story of his son right from the beginning. God intentionally invites them to do what? To come and visit his newborn son. Never crossed your mind, right? Your son born into the world, first night in the hospital, and you go out to round up all the homeless guys living under bridges to come check out. Like, that's, that's the crowd? For God, it is. God wanted them, of all people, to be the welcoming committee. You see, a night that began like every other night was radically interrupted by the revelation that God wanted to involve himself in the life of his son. The ramifications of that idea, they're incredible for us. You see, if God would go out of his way to involve these shepherds in the life of Jesus, if he invites the likes of these men, these outlaws, to be a part of his son's glorious story, if they could be recipients of God's grace, then the truth is there's hope for you and I. Like in many ways, whether it's by intention or accident. Have you ever noticed that many of the traditions of Christmas have become characterized by their unapologetic desire to claim the impossible as being true? Like, have you ever noticed that about Christmas? Like old Saint Nick, 
possessing an omniscient knowledge of who's naughty and who's nice, and then custom tailoring rewards based upon this judgment. Like, that's an impossible claim. Like, the, it's only the NSA that has that type of knowledge. One diabetic fat man in a red suit flying through the air, distributing all of these gifts in one night to the world's 7 billion residents. Like, Amazon can't even do that. Like, that's an impossible claim. Not to be outdone, but mistletoe providing this supernatural force field by which a woman will automatically surrender all willpower and be magically compelled to kiss a man regardless of looks or breath. Like, that's an impossible claim. On a side note, mistletoe. Doesn't it kind of sound like a Christmas roofie? Like, have you ever found... Have you ever found it to kind of be bizarre what mistletoe claims to do? Like you lay aside willpower? Like that's kind of the gift you would expect to get from Bill Cosby. Or Clinton. <clears throat> Just making sure you're with me. Just making sure. You can send all email complaints to agperez at gmail.com. <laughs> Though Christmas is full of these impossible claims. The truth is that the one claim of Christmas that takes the cake, like the one claim that is, is seriously the most outlandish, most incredible, is that 2,000 years ago, God came to earth as a baby. Let's, let's be real. Let's be honest. God taking on flesh, being born of a virgin to a teenage mother in a stable manger, would eventually grow up to be the savior of all mankind is an outlandish assertion. But as he did with the shepherds, and in contrast to the approach many take as it pertains to other outlandish claims, like a belief in Santa to just accept it, God doesn't do that. Like God isn't asking you, and understand this this morning, to believe the claims of the Bible with a blind faith. Rather, God invites you, as he did the shepherds, to engage in a quest, to embark on a journey, to seek to authenticate the claim. You see, God invites men and women, shepherds, to go and see for yourself. Like, Notice the progression in the text that we read of the angel's pronouncement. First, to the shepherds, there was this statement of fact. There is born to you this day. This was a, a claim of absolute truth. Like the reality of the, of the event was not up for debate. It wasn't to be discussed or even questioned. The reality was sure. Regardless of how they viewed it, Jesus had indeed been born that night in Bethlehem and he was the savior. It was a truth regardless of their perspective or opinion, a statement of fact. But that's not where the angel left it we also see that there was now an invitation to authenticate that claim. This will be the sign to you. It's almost as though the angels is literally saying this. Though the birth of Jesus is a fact, this has just gone down. Like, you don't have to take my word for it. Go, look for yourself. Yeah, there's a bunch of babies. There's only one in a manger, go find him. That's the kid who will be the savior to save you from sins. 
this sign. In the original language, sign, it was a point of authentication. That's what it meant. And it was that sign that would serve to validate the claim that the angel had made, and in doing so, dispel their skepticism. But finally, there was also a promise, right? You will find a babe. There's a statement of fact. There is born. If you're curious about that, well, there's a sign to authenticate that claim. Now, the question is, will you go look? Because if you will, you will find a babe. This English phrase, you will find, is actually one Greek word that means you will find out for yourself. That's what it means. The angel promises that if these shepherds would accept the invitation to seek out proof for themselves, they would discover the claim that Jesus' birth, the Savior's birth, was authentic. You know, that's one of the things that I really do love about God. And I hope if you're a skeptic, if you're not sure this morning, I want you to hear me real quick. As with these shepherds, God presents truth. Not as a a cumbersome pill he's going to force down your throat. That's not how God works. God presents truth. And instead of forcing it upon you, he instead just invites you to search out to see if it's real. To authenticate it for yourself. You see, the question really boils down to whether or not you'll accept the challenge to go look and see. Verse 15, so it was, when the angels had gone away from them into Bethlehem, that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things, pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. The angel disappears. The heavenly hosts go away. The shepherds are left back in this dark field with the sheep, their campfire, looking at each other, thinking, wow. (laughs) Like, what do we have to lose, really? Like, let's go and see. These shepherds responded to the angelic invitation. And in the process, they find for themselves not just Jesus, but they're included in Jesus' story for all of eternity. After recognizing the significance of what had taken place, in a sense, really, what, what do the shepherds do? Something very simple. They make a a resolute determination that they're going to act on God's word. They had received God's word. Now they're going to act on it. A challenge had been issued and they concluded a step of faith was not only reasonable, but, but what did they have to lose? On a side note, I have a theory about this story that answers two nagging questions I've always had about the first Christmas night. For full disclosure, I've never taught this before, and this thought only hit me during my last read-through of my Bible study this morning, which is a terrible time to have a thought that requires you to rework the entire Bible study. Do you not find it weird or odd that shepherds are out in the fields keeping watch over their flocks by night? 
You see, I think that that statement to the reader is supposed to kind of leave, your, leave you with a, a head-scratching kind of perplexity. Like, if you know anything about shepherds, which you might not, I had to do a little research on my own, having your flocks in the fields by night is against all protocol. Like, it's not normal. Like, a shepherd would never have his flocks grazing in the fields at night because it was dangerous. It was hard to keep track of all of your sheep. They were vulnerable. You see, a shepherd would graze during the day for the purposes of feeding, watering, only to then return to the safety of a stable when nightfall descended. Like, you have to ask yourself, like, why in the world were these shepherds and their flocks in the fields at night and not back in the stable, which is where they should have been? Jesus teaches a parable about, about a shepherd, and he talks about the shepherd guarding the door. There was one door that the shepherd would lay in front of to keep the sheep safe in a cave, one entrance, one opening. That was how it all worked. Now, now beyond that, have you ever found it peculiar that after determining they were going to find this babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. All Luke tells us is that they came with haste, found the babe lying in a manger. Like, is that not odd? Like, though the angel provides them no other details or directions than that one, uh, one idea. Like, doesn't say where the manger is, what stable it is, what part of Bethlehem. Like, nothing else. There's a babe in a manger, Go find. It seems from the text, right, that the quest wasn't difficult. Like this word that they came with haste implies they knew exactly what stable this baby was in. Could it be? I can't say this is a fact. Just a theory, an observation. But could it be that these shepherds were in the field at night they were there in the first place because they had given their stable to a young, poor couple that were desperate to find shelter on account that that young woman was about to have a baby. Have you ever connected the notion that Mary and Joseph end up in a stable and shepherds end up in the field? That maybe the two are connected? Like, I believe these shepherds as rough as they were, demonstrated compassion towards Mary and Joseph earlier that night, which then kind of explains why maybe the angel appears to them first. Like, in a sense, the angels are letting these shepherds know who it was they had actually demonstrated a kindness towards. There's a baby in a manger. No. Wait, what? I only know of one pregnant woman in a stable about to have a baby. Could it be the son of God? The shepherds knew exactly where that baby was. They knew it. Now, now this is why I think this detail is important. God's grace had been extended to these shepherds. And the very fact that Mary and Joseph came to their doorstep, but they had been completely oblivious to it. They didn't know who Mary and Joseph were. They didn't know the backstory. They didn't know what bun that was in the oven. 
Like demonstrating kindness by allowing a young woman to use your barn to have a baby, like that's one thing. But I have to assume that if they knew who that baby would grow up to be, they wouldn't have been in the fields. Like how awesome that God's grace sent the angels to make sure these men didn't miss the moment. While there was no room for them in the end, was that an oversight? Like when Mary and Joseph get there and there's no room for them in the end, is God up in heaven thinking, I knew I forgot something. Like I had all these things planned out, book in the room. Holy Spirit, that was your job. What's up? Like, like how did we miss it? Like was it an accident that there was no room for them in the end? I don't think so at all. I think this particular stable and those shepherds were part of God's plan long before Mary and Joseph ever made their way to Bethel. Like, how ironic, right? That the angels weren't sent to the innkeeper who turned Mary and Joseph away, but instead was sent to a group of shepherds who had taken them in. And while they had initially been oblivious, what do we learn? Even when we're oblivious, to what God is doing, to what he's up to, how he's wanting to involve himself. And even when we are dense and miss it, God's grace remains sufficient. They had to be brought into the loop. Just a theory. Luke continues, when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. Like this word, they had seen him, communicates more than just a, a visual seeing with the eyes. The verse would be better translated now when they perceived who he was. Like these men had acted on faith. They had entered this stable. They not only saw a babe in swaddling clothes lying in a manger, but they recognized that the angel was right. They recognized who that child would grow up to be. He was their savior. That's what they saw. That's what they knew. That's what they believed. And we know they believed because of the reaction that immediately follows the encounter, right? Luke tells us these shepherds leave the stable, enter Bethlehem, and they proceed to tell anyone in the middle of the night who would listen what God had just done for them, what God had just revealed. You know, in many ways, these shepherds simply tell their testimony, their own story. As a witness of these things, witnessing became very natural, right? The outlaws now became proclaimers because of God's grace. Finally, we read, they returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told to them. After encountering Jesus by God's grace, Luke documents two reactions to all the things they had heard and seen. First, they glorified God, which describes their attitude before the Lord. They exalted the Lord before proceeding to praise God which notes their actions. They glorified. It was the, an attitude of their heart that manifested in praising. Earlier that night, you can imagine the songs a, a group of drunk shepherds would have been singing. At the end of that night, they're around that same fire, now glorifying and praising God. Note that they returned. Where? To that dark field in Bethlehem. Though these men's lives would be forever changed by encountering Jesus, their environment didn't change one iota. They returned back to the same field full of the same dingy sheep. 
Everything had changed, even though their environment hadn't. They're now glorifying and praising God. On a side note, God never saves us to remove us from the darkness. He saves us so that we might shine his light into the darkness. If you want Jesus as a way of escape, that's not his gig. If you want Jesus as a way of help, that's exactly what he offers. So, what really is the reason for the season? That's our question. Friend, in addition to the fun that our unique American traditions afford, the trees and Santa Claus and reindeer and all of that, it's a lot of, a lot of fun. But I want you to know that you should also celebrate Christmas because it marks the day when God sent his son, not to the religious people, not to the power brokers, not to the great intellectual, the thinker, but Christmas notes when God sent his son to lowly shepherds, to you and I. Christmas is important because it reminds us of God's grace and the glorious invitation it provides us. On Christmas, you're afforded an opportunity to remember and reflect on the incredible reality the majesty of God was sent to enter the sad plight of your humanity. The true reason for the season is that Jesus willingly set aside the majesty of heaven to come to earth, to enter your fray, your darkness, your field, to demonstrate God's grace and invite you to be included in his awesome story. And if this morning you feel unworthy, if you feel like you're a failure, if like Buddy the Elf, you see yourself as a cotton-headed ninny muggins, if you've bought in a lie that whatever you've done or whatever you're currently doing somehow places you beyond the reach of God, that even God has given up on you, even if you've been oblivious to all the moments leading up to this point where God has demonstrated his grace to you in the past, as illustrated in his dealings with these outlaws of Bethlehem, take heart. Jesus came to earth to specifically involve himself in the life of a person just like you. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we're told of a glorious reality. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. You see, Christmas affords an incredible opportunity to celebrate the essence of God's grace. And what is that? Because God gave his son. Because a son was given. A path was paved for your salvation to be received. Like those shepherds, you haven't earned this gift. The truth is you don't deserve it. But God gave his son anyway. Before Jesus could be laid in a garden tomb. He'd have to first be laid in a stable manger. It was a necessity. You see, without the manger in Bethlehem, there would have never been a cross on Calvary. Jesus came for what purpose? To be a savior for sins. The question I want you to consider this morning is rather simple. 
Why do you celebrate Christmas? Do you only celebrate the cultural traditions that dominate our landscape? Or do you take time, not just yourself with your spouse, but with your kids, to celebrate and to consider the deeper, more spiritual implications found in the birth of Jesus? This morning, hate to break it to you, it isn't an angel or a heavenly host speaking to you through whatever darkness you're presently living in. That ain't me. I ain't an angel. As a matter of fact, I'm an outlaw. Another shepherd, another shepherd changed by God's grace. Another shepherd who heard the word and responded and has been included in Jesus' story, not because I was deserving, but because he just loved me. I'm just a shepherd. Here to tell you one simple thing. Friend, there is, and there was, born to you in the city of David, a Savior who's Christ the Lord. What do you have to lose? Why not come and see? And so, Father, Lord...